You're listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast, where we take the Wall Street bull by the horns to help you achieve your financial goals. Whether it's budgeting, investing, or financial independence, we tackle the big questions in the pursuit of financial literacy. And now, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and this week we have a very special guest joining us. Joining us today is Dr. Guy Baker. Now, this man is very impressive. He has three master's degrees, a doctorate, has been a professor of financial literacy at the University of California at Irvine, and is the author of the book Baker's Dozen, 13 Principles for Financial Independence. Uh, for a financial podcast, he is an absolute dream to have on here. And let's go ahead and bring him out. Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Alex. I hope I don't disappoint you. Oh, I severely doubt it. I'm sure just the random thoughts you have going in your brain is more than I've said in the last 80 something episodes of this podcast. So whatever we can get out of you, I th- I'm sure I'll be happy with. <laughs> well, great. Well, whatever I can do to help. Absolutely. And I did go over just I mean, a couple bullet points of your resume, but would you mind going in your own words, just talk about maybe your history in the financial services industry? Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate, um, I got uh, introduced to the insurance industry and was recruited to sell life insurance to college students. And I had a, a high level of success and they uh, actually asked me to be a trainer for the next year. So I recruited and trained students uh, to sell life insurance for the next two years while I was getting an MBA in finance. And when I graduated, I decided I wasn't going to do finance anymore. I wanted to get into a real salaried position. The problem was they were offering me a a salary that was about half of what I was earning part-time while I was going to school. So (laughs) I decided "Hmm, maybe I better give this a chance. And uh, I've just been doing that ever since. We, so we work with uh, clients on uh, tax planning. We work with them on financial planning. We manage money for them. We set up retirement plans, those types of things. And, you know, I've been doing this for 57 years and, you know, it's just been a wonderful experience. Well, that's amazing. Do you have, just because I'm curious, do you have any like big financial services firms that we could throw out there that you've worked for? Or I know you've actually started a couple companies if you wanted to go and talk about those. Yeah. So we have an RIA, which is called uh, Wealth Teams Alliance. And then we have a financial planning business consulting firm called BMI Consulting. We have a retirement planning firm called BTA Advisory Group. Uh, and we've worked with some of the largest companies in the United States. We've worked with uh, Disney, Mars Candy Bars, Hewlett Packard. I mean, those are a number of companies that we've you know, done consulting work for over the years. Yeah. So essentially, uh, you know, not very big names, just uh, your average yeah. common right down the block. Just n- nothing too crazy. Not certainly some of the biggest companies in the U.S. and probably the world. <laughs> well, those were years ago, you know, in the last uh, 20 years, we've really uh, focused primarily on Main Street. Uh, and I, I just felt more comfortable working with small business owners and people who are getting ready to retire. And, you know, because they're, they're the ones that need the help and there's not a lot of people helping them. Yeah, I, as someone who started a financial independence podcast with a very specific target audience of people who, you know, haven't had a financial education before, I can completely and utterly uh, 
agree with you there. And we're on the same page. So I understand your, your target audience is like uh, 18 to 35 year olds. And, you know, they're the people that really need to understand and know how to manage their money and how to think about financial literacy, because by the time they they're ready to start thinking about it, which might be 45 or 50, it's a little too late. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of the, I don't want to say irony, because that's probably not the right word. I guess that's sort of the trap of how finance works and how investing works is that at the time you're making, at the time of your life and of your career, where you're probably making the least amount of money and having the most amount of financial res- responsibilities, you know, buying cars, buying houses, raising kids, and trying to build your career, that is also the key time for wealth building because you need to be also putting money aside so that you have decades to let it grow. Unfortunately, what happens is people say, oh, well, you know, I'm not making that much or I'm not making as much as I could be. And I have all these other responsibilities. So I'll say I'll put off investing for a little bit later when I have some breathing room. Well, the problem is by the time that breathing room shows up, you've also cut off, you know, two decades out of your the compoundability of your investments. And then while, yes, you are able to sack away a lot more money or a higher percentage of your income, you've lost that. 20 years of compounding that you otherwise could have had. You know, that's absolutely right. And I teach uh, that whole principle of compound interest uh, using what, you know, the rule of 72 and your audience may not understand the rule of 72, but it's really simple. You know, you divide 72 by the number of years uh, that you want to know how long it'll take money to, uh, to double and the answer, so like if it's 10 years, you want money to double, divide that into 72. So you've got to earn 7.2%. Uh, so like, for instance, if somebody's 20, you know, if we double money every 10 years, that's five compoundings. You know, if they wait to start when they're 40, now they've only got three compoundings. So th- that really cuts off a huge amount of the, the gains that they can get in that portfolio. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, that's why we have, you do what you do. That's why I do what I do. Cause we gotta, we gotta catch them early. Gotta make sure Absolutely. we let them know. <laughs> that's true. We, they need to understand the, the, the power of the decisions they may or may not be making. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You said before, and I wasn't going to say a number, but you said it, I'm going to go ahead and stick with it. Uh, you've been in this industry for around 50 years uh, what do you think would be maybe your top one, two, or three points that you think, if you had to summarize the most important concepts, things to know, principles, what, what do you think would be your top lessons that you'd share with people? Well, I think the most important thing for anybody to understand is that if, if they don't get going accumulating money early, they're going to be way behind the eight ball. Uh, when you know they're 50 or 55 and they can finally start to afford it. So the, the truth is they can't afford not to start now. And you know we've had some really um, interesting younger people come into our office and work with me in, in the last few years where the parents have said to the kids, you've got to go in and see Dr. Guy. Of course, I prefer to be called Guy. But anyway, <laughs> but they always call me Dr. Guy. But they come in and, you know, they've already saved $10,000, $15,000. And what I, what I see oftentimes is, is that that money 
uh, is kind of in conflict with their life goals. You know, they need a new car. Uh, they want to go on a trip or something like that. And so if you use the rule of 72 and that five compounds, you know, but 10,000 becomes 20, 40, 80, 160, $320,000 in five compoundings. So if they take $10,000 and buy a car, did they really want to spend $320,000 for it? And they don't think like that. You know, they think like $10,000. Well, I, you know, I saved that up in three years. I can do that again. But what they've really done is they have taken $10,000 in that compounding and wasted that on a car that they could have financed. Absolutely. I mean, the I'd add a number two in there. I mean, if the number one most important thing is start early, I think the number two is think of your money. And I think this is basically what you said, but think of your money in the term in terms of its future value. So right. that's $10,000 today. But you can either you know, buy a $10,000 car today or you put that $10,000 aside and it doubles you know, potentially seven times. And you know, do you want a $10,000 car or $300,000 when you retire? It, I think if yeah. people looked at things like that, it would really change the calculus on some of their decision making. You're absolutely right, Alex. And you know, so you asked me about lessons learned. Another lesson that I think uh, needs to be taught is how to set goals. If you ask the key question that most people need to answer, and that's how much money do you really need at retirement in order to have the money produce an income for uh, life, you know, at starting 65, 70, whenever that is, if you don't know what that number is, how are you ever going to hit it? You know, if you don't have a goal to shoot for and you can't keep track of how well you're doing, uh, you may end up with a lot less. And you know, I've seen uh, studies, in fact, I just saw one yesterday that was put out by the principal group, and they were talking about uh, 30% of the people that they surveyed thought if they had $100,000 at retirement that they would be able to, to manage their expenditures along with Social Security. Well, you know, 100000 is not going to go very long, especially if you've got inflation to deal with. Wait, just... I think you just broke my brain real quick. Uh, <laughs> okay. The survey was saying, just because I'm not wrapping my head around this, I, I need to double check. The results of the survey were that people who thought, people said they had a hundred, if they had a hundred thousand dollars at age 65, that just hundred thousand dollars by itself, plus social security, they thought that would be enough for retirement. Well, this a percentage of the study said that some said 300,000. But nobody said a million or a million and a half, you know, if they wanted to maintain their same lifestyle. So I mean, there's a total lack of understanding of that calculus, as you called it. Yes, that <laughs> that sorry, that just sounded so profoundly wrong in my head that I was like, hold on, there are people who think that like, I mean, $100,000, some of these people probably at their prime earning year, was, what's the median in household income right now? 60-ish thousand dollars. They thought 100,000 would last through retirement. What's the average, what? Average life expectancy in the US right now is something 77, 78. So if you retire- well, No, probably closer to 82, 81, 82. I mean, that's even worse. So if you're assuming you were, sorry, I'm just thinking this out in my head. Uh, if you're assuming you retire at 65, 
And let's say you assume you're going to pass at 80. That's 15 years. You're going to try to make that $100,000 last along with Social Security, which I mean, there's more than enough studies saying that Social Security is not enough alone to retire off of. And sorry, I just broke my brain. That's why we need financial education. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, there was a USA Today uh, survey about five years ago that I read that thought that number was 50,000. So at least it's double. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, reasonableness. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, what's, uh, what's G.I. Joe. Knowing is half the battle. I mean, some people it's like... <sighs> Uh, and see, I was actually pulling up one of my calculators to come up with the, to give some concrete numbers for, you know, investing early. So if we say you wanted a million dollars by retirement, then actually, I'll tell you what, I've got this. I, I actually do. I'm such a nerd. I've got these equations just on my computer. Cause yeah, if I'd have thought about it, I'd bring up mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just horrible. Okay. So Here's what I did just for fun. So 30-year time horizon. So if you're retiring, uh, and this is just quick math. I've got this right here just for the people listening, just to kind of prove the point here. So if you're retiring at 65 and you start saving at 35, so that's 30 years of growth. And let's say you get 7% per year. Let's see. To have that million dollars at retirement, you would need to put aside about $820 per month. Right. $820 per month. To get a million dollars. Now, let's say instead of starting at 35, you started at 25. So we're adding an extra 10 years there. So we're going to see the power of compounding. So you needed $820 to get that million. Well, if you start 10 years earlier, that number is $380. $380 per month, which what's that? $140 per check? No, that's not right. Uh, so you never do quick math while you're recording, guys. You're just going to look bad. <laughs> uh, 190 per paycheck. That's just 10 years. What if you, and that was somebody starting to save at 35. What if someone doesn't start until 40? I mean, that extra five years, that's going to take uh, a big bite out of whatever you could have saved. Right. So another way of looking at that is if you have $15,000 today and you can grow it at 10%, you know, uh, in seven multipliers, right? So that's what, however many years, it's a million dollars, right? So, mm -hmm. so you know, I don't know, seven into, let's say, you know, let's say you're uh, 21, right? So seven, uh, so between 21 and 65 is what, 44 years? That Divide is that by seven. three of so those 10 year periods. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, the point is, is that it doesn't take that much to get to a million if you have discipline and you stick with it and you invest it wisely. But if you don't pay any attention to it, if you're not willing to save, you know, $700, $800 a month, you know, into a 401k program, you're, you know, you're going to fall way short, which brings you into the three questions no one can answer about retirement. All right. Well, we got three questions. Hit me. I'm ready. Okay. Question number one, what's your number? In other words, what's your goal? How much do you have to have at retirement to create the income that you want to have? And let's say you use three and a half percent, you know, as your multiplier on a million, that's 35,000 a year if you're not spending capital. So that's the first question. The second question is, how much do I need to save on top of what I've already saved in order to get to that million, to get to that goal? 
Okay. And then the third question is the one that everybody falls short of. And that is, how do I invest my money so that I have a high probability of reaching that goal with the least amount of risk? Yeah, uh, definitely the magic questions. How much do you need? How do I get there? I mean, is it attainable too? What do I need to invest in? And there are so many firms that focus on number three, uh, on how to do it. Oh, you know, give us your money. We'll invest it for you. Or uh, Betterment, Wealthfront, a financial advisor, everyone and their mother has a strategy and everyone focuses on the strategy where really a lot of it is just having that capital and investing it over time. If you have something that makes 9% versus 7%, yes, you'll end up in a better place. But I think where a lot of people can get lost in this is that they're so busy focusing on the, how do I get that extra percentage return that they don't think, am I putting aside enough? I mean, if you say you make a bad, a less efficient choice in your investment options and you make 6% per year and you could have made eight. Well, if you're saving, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 per year compounded at 6% for, you know, 20, 30 years, you're still going to end up with a very significant sum. It could have been the most you could have gotten, maybe not, but at least you were still putting that money aside. You were still earning that money. Some people get so so caught up in trying to get the eight, nine, 10% per year that they forget rule number one is just putting aside that principle. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, you talked about your brain exploding. Okay. <laughs> so if you invested $1 in the S and P, you know, so, you know, anybody can buy the S and P you don't need betterment or any of these other robo advisors to do that. Right. You just mm-hmm. go buy SPY and stick in $10,000. Right. So if you bought that and it compounded, uh, you know, $1 compounded since 1926 to today, it would be worth roughly $12,000. Okay. So multiply that by 10,000 or, you know, whatever it is. Okay. But that's a compounded return of 10.4% over that period of time. And there's no reason to think that the market's not going to continue to compound at 10 0.4% over the next 30, 40 years. It might do it, not do it tomorrow. It might not do it this year or the next year, but over a long period of time, what it's done in the past is called the expected return of what it's going to be in the future. Okay. So let's take that number, $12,000. Now, if you took all the inflation out, and this is the, what's going to explode your mind. Okay. What do you think that $12,000 would be worth if there was no inflation over that same period of time. Okay, so $12,000, 1926, $12,000. I don't know, is that inflation? It's just the real return on that dollar, what the market would have given with no inflation. Oh, okay, $500,000. Damn, darn. would have grown to $900 if there was no inflation over the last 95 years. Now, what's interesting, what's really interesting about this, Alex, okay, is that the compounded return to get to 12,000 was, like I said, 10.4%. The compounded return to get to $900 was 7.3%. So that's only a 300 basis point, a 3% differential between that. But that goes to show you how important 
you know, having a consistent return over a long period of time is and how little additional amount it really takes in return to get to your goal. Yeah. I mean, you really, people love chasing the 10 or 12% return, but really if you get a six or 7%, you're still going to be fine. Yeah, no, you really are. Oh, you know, uh, and compounding at 7% is not a bad return, especially when the market does uh, 10. Now what's interesting, there was a Dow bar study that's been completely, you know, updated over and over again, year after year after year, that studies what the average investor gets compared to what the market gets. Okay. And that differential is about 6%. Okay. In other words, the average investor gets about four, whereas the market gets about 10. And the reason for that is that people get scared. They give up, they pull out, they go back in, they pull out, they go back in. And so every time they do that, they lose return, even though they think they're preserving and saving their money. Yep. The classic, oh no, the sky is falling. Let's, you know, sell all my S&P 500 and let's move into bonds. And then, okay, everything's back to normal now. Time to buy back in. But, you know, they didn't buy back in at the most efficient time. So while the market's doing well, because they're playing this hopscotch game of put your left foot in, you took your right foot out, because they're playing that game, you end up losing a bunch of returns. I remember... um, I forgot his name or I'm blanking on his name. Um, Peter Lynch, Peter Lynch, his Magellan fund for what was it? 14 years. And his average return was something like, uh, I forget his average return was something like 15, 16% over that entire period. But the average investor that invested in his fund actually only made like six or 7% because they didn't hold the fund the entire time. They were, they would hold it a certain amount. They would sell out at certain times and they'd buy back in. So even though the fund did extraordinarily well, the average investor did not do nearly that well. No, you're absolutely right. Well, you know, we've seen an example of that just in the last week. Okay. You know, the market was going down, 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 down. Everybody was scared. Right. And then all of a sudden, you had this rally where the jump market jumped up four or 5%. Well, who's going to be smart enough to figure out when to get back in to capture that? So, you know, you sell out here because you think it's going down and then the market goes up 5%. So you lost whatever it took, you know, over that period of time and you lost that 5%. So, I'm, you know, the smart thing for anybody to do who's 21 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, regardless of age, really, is pick a good allocation that's representative of how much risk you're willing to take and then just ride with it for 40 years and see see what the market will do. Yep. And again, I mean, as I said, or as both of us said earlier, even if it's not the most efficient option, even if you, you know, you pick your thing and let's, all right, here's what I'm going to invest in. I'm going to stick with it for 40 years. If, you know, 20 years in you go, oh, well, the S&P is trailing the, you know, Dow 100 or uh, what was it? The triple Q or QQQ. Even if halfway through that time you see yours is maybe less efficient than the other, if you switch then you're going to get non-efficient returns. Because sure, it might have trailed that first 20 years, but what's going to happen the next 20 years? And as we've discussed, 
switching is what kills you. Even if you don't get the most return, if you just get a solid, steady return over that long period of time, you're still going to be fine. Yep, you're absolutely right. You know what? A lot of people don't understand, Alex, not that I want to change the focus of what we're talking about, but just kind of shift it a little bit. Okay. Go for it. Is that the markets are not homogeneous. Okay. You know, if you take the S&P with 500 stocks, right? Some of them are tech, some of them are retail, some of them are financial. I mean, that's not homogeneous. You can't expect all of those stocks in those various categories to perform the same over a long period of time. What you bought was the aggregate performance of 500 stocks in the S&P over a long period of time. Well, the total market is that way too. Uh, and one of the ways to break that up is in terms of capitalization. So you can divide the market into quadrants based on the very largest companies and the very smallest companies. And you can break it uh, into additional factors based on how much assets they have, whether they have a lot of assets or whether they're a growth company with very little in the way of assets. And what it turns out is, is that if you do an analysis of those quadrants to see how those quadrants have performed over a long period of time, the, the overall performance is like 10.4%, like I said, okay? But each of those quadrants does remarkably different over that period of time. So like for instance, large cap companies that have no assets, $1 instead of growing to 12,000, would have grown to about 5,700. $1 in small companies with no assets would have grown to 3,700. $1 into companies that have a lot of assets, large companies with a lot of assets, grew to 17,000. Do you wanna guess what small companies with a lot of assets have grown to over the last 96 years? Probably. Let's see, are we talking average market cap or just uh, average dollar amount? Uh, growth in dollars. And I would so say 57, 35, 17. What do you think small value would have grown to? 57, 35, uh, 300,000. You know, that's an amazing guess, but it's 137,000. Okay. So I was a little. I was that's, a little. A, that's a 14% IRR on that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's the best asset class over the last 95 years. And yet most of the portfolios that I look at, and we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of them, have less than 1% in that category. <laughs> so much for learning from history? <laughs> well, I think it's risk. You know, there's a lot of risk in small cap. And, you know, most money managers don't want to, put clients in a situation where they have risk, but you can, you can build a portfolio that has the same amount of risk that has, you know, five, 7% in small value to be able to increase the overall return of the portfolio. So we have the best performing asset class in the last 90 years. And yet somehow we've got all these hedge fund managers, all these mutual fund managers, we've got Basically, everybody with fancy degrees going, you know what? Sure, this may have been the best thing in the last 90 years, but you know what? Let's only have 1% for it. That, that's probably enough. Well, less than 1%. <laughs> that's even worse. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, Lordy. So another question I had for you, this is something that we've touched on a little bit earlier, but we went into great deal talking about how, you know, $100,000, $150,000, and certainly $50,000 is not enough money to retire on. So I know we've been throwing around a million, but especially with what inflation is looking like now. And for people who are in the age group we're kind of targeting here, you know, 20 to 30 or 20 to 35, what what number should people in that age range be shooting for? Or what, what should the target number be? Well, I think uh, if we knew, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, if you're 20 years old and you're not going to retire for 50 years, that number is going to be a lot different than if you're 50 years old and you're gonna retire in 20 years, okay? But, uh, so this is why you have to be invested in something that tracks inflation. Because if, you, if you're not in something that tracks inflation, you're gonna end up you know, way behind the eight ball, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I think the most reasonable way of doing this is to take your monthly budget, okay? And break it into three categories. You know, one category would be fixed expenses. That's where you lock those in and they're not going to change. So like a mortgage on a house is a fixed expense if you've got a fixed interest rate, right? And then you've got your, your fixed payments, which differentiates. That's like a car payment, you know, or uh, utilities. I mean, things that you have to pay uh, in order to be able to survive. So that's different than debt. And then the third one's variable, okay? And variable's where everybody gets into trouble because, you know, that's where all the fun is. You know, that's where the lifestyle, that's the movies, out to dinner, you know, vacations, all of that stuff. So I know this sounds a lot like a budget, but <laughs> that's, and of course they are complementary. But when you think about inflation, the things that are gonna go up are probably those fixed payments and the variable because the fixed debt isn't going to go up in all probability, right? And you're going to be building equity over that period of time. So if you're earning, say, $50,000 a year, and say 20,000 of that, that's net after tax, and 20,000 of that are fixed, pay, fixed uh, debt payments, right? And 30,000 then is more in the variable category. That's the dollars that you've got to think about and what they're going to grow. So you can use the same rule as 72, right, for inflation, just like you can for compounding. You know, you just divide 72 by whatever you think the inflation rate's going to be. So the historical inflation rate of 3% is not a bad estimate. I mean, you know, we're talking 8 10% inflation right now, but, you know, hopefully that will abate because, you know, an economy can't exist on an inflation rate that's, that's that high. But 3% is probably pretty historic. You know, if you look at the, the, the FRED data and other data that's out there. So, you know, 3 into 72 is basically, you know, 22 years, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are, um, you know, 20, you know, then you, you might see costs triple over the, over the time period from now to when you retire. You know, whereas if you're 40, you know, maybe it's going to go up one and a half to two times. Maybe it's going to go up one time if you're 55. So anyway, the point being that inflation is going to impact p 
people differently depending on their age right now. So, you know, let's say somebody's at 50 and they need to be at 150, then they've got to adjust their thoughts about what inflation, what uh, social security is going to be, right? And what, and how much capital that they've got to have. But a good rule of thumb, if you don't want to dissipate your capital is somewhere between three and a half and 4%. But, the, you know, it just depends on what the market's doing at the time of the capital. So if you've got $3 million, that's 120,000 a year, right? Plus social security might get you somewhere around 150 net after tax. Not too shabby. No, no, but that's based on 50 today, right? So you got to get from 50 today up to 3 million. So, uh, you know, that's going to take some savings. But, you know, I remember when I bought my first house, it was like $25,000. That <laughs> house today is probably worth eight or $900,000. So, you know, they're, the assets tend to keep pace with inflation over time. You just need to have some assets. Yeah. So that's stop spending your money on stuff that, you know, gets used and thrown away or just say, get, buy a hard asset. Hard assets are going to change value. I mean, if you have stuff and you're worried about inflation, inflation increases the value of stuff. Now, whether that stuff is assets or not, I mean, I leave that up to you, but uh, having stuff that can be later resold, such as financial assets, a house, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, that that's only going to help you. Well, that's true. That so, you know, let, let, let's go back to our $10,000 car, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you have a choice of taking $10,000 out of your investment account to pay cash for a car, because you don't want to be dealing with the payment on that car every month, right? Mm -hmm. it, and that 10,000 could grow to 320,000 if you left it in there, you know, those are the types of decisions people have to be able to have enough knowledge to be able to make that decision because, you know, it's far better to pay $200 a month for a car over a period of time than it is to take 10,000 out of your investment account. Yep. Absolutely. All righty, doctor. Well, I guess I can't call you Dr. Baker anymore. I shouldn't because you said you prefer Guy. So you know what? I'm just going to stick with what you want. So Guy, you have been very generous with your time today. And I'm sure I know I had a good conversation. I know everyone listening probably had a good time. And if certainly if they're still here, still listening to me ramble right now, uh, they've definitely enjoyed the conversation. So let me ask you this. Where can my audience go to find out more about you, more about your funds, your companies? Where can they connect with you? Well, as most people have today, a website. <laughs> so they can go to wealth, and this is kind of funky, hyphen, wealth-teams.com. There's a lot of videos on there, educational videos, a lot of books that I've written on investing. Uh, they can find out a lot of stuff of, that is just out there as educational information for anybody who's curious. All right. And I'll go ahead and I'm going to link that in the description below. So no matter where you're watching this, listening to this, it will be in the description below uh, the link to his website and probably a second link to those videos because I definitely need to go chase it down and definitely a link to his book, Baker's Dozen, which I now have to go hunt down and get me a copy. So Guy, I got one last question for you. And it's the question I don't warn any of my guests for. Uh, it's something I like to kind of catch people off guard with. So I'm going to start off with there is no wrong answer. 
But what I'm going to ask for you is if I can get a single mic drop statement for you today. Now, it can be anything. It could be, you know, something you've learned over the past 50 years of you being in finances. It could be life advice, could be, you know, your favorite Plato quote. But if you had to just leave us with one statement, what would that be? So what we never really got to in this conversation was uh, my spiritual background, which I think undergirds, you know, my whole entire life. All right. So I've read the Bible through 15 plus times, taught Bible studies and et cetera. So my one micro statement would be I do the work and I trust God for the results. Well, I asked for a powerful statement. You got me there. (laughs) All right, Guy, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I know you're a very busy man. You're certainly a very well-educated man. You definitely didn't have to be here today, but I definitely want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending some time with us today. Oh, it's my blessing. Glad to be here. All righty, guys. So I'm going to have all those links for Dr. Baker or for Dr. Guy in the description below, there's plenty of things for you to go look at. I hope you guys check it out. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Main Street Finance Podcast. Have a question on today's topics or have suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to mainstfinance at gmail.com. Sharing is caring. So if you learned something new and useful today, make sure you share with friends and family. Don't forget to like and subscribe to be notified of new episodes. For demonstrations and more examples, be sure to check out the YouTube channel. We'll see you next time.